G'day, everyone. G'day, everyone. Oh, I'm Dave. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's a great chance, I reckon, for, um, for us to spend some time thinking about a, a huge topic tonight. And the topic is really working out one way or the other whether or not you know if you're a Christian. Or if you know you're not a Christian, working out why you're not, if you think you are but you're not quite sure, all those sort of things. Huge topic, one that was um, probably introduced a little bit last week, maybe in 2 Corinthians 13, but it's also what we're going to look at next week, um, looking at over the next two weeks. Now the way I want to kick it off though is by speaking to you about a theme, uh, and the theme is expectations. Expectations. Um, How do you deal with other people's expectations on you? How do you deal with that? Uh, I remember meeting my future father-in-law for the first time. And uh, let's just say I was a bundle of anxiety, concern, worry, and stress. A couple of reasons for that. Um, uh, My uh, girlfriend, something now wife, Sam, she had told me several things about him which were alarming. She said he was a serious man, a stern man, not a particularly jovial kind of guy. He had been a Qantas pilot for like 40 years. So, you know, he did stuff that was serious and... That was the sort of thing. Um, he was also very handsome. He looked like George Clooney, she told me. I immediately felt intimidated. Um, in addition to that, I thought about myself. Now, my wife is eight years younger than me. Um, I no need for the audible gasp. It's not that big a deal. When you're my age, that's nothing. Now, um, in my early 20s, before I'd be- become a Christian, I'd been married and divorced. I had a couple of kids from that marriage. Um, I was also very self-conscious of my tattoos. He's a man in his 60s and a serious kind of guy, and um, I had these tattoos since I was a teenager, really, in the army and that sort of stuff. And so I felt very self-conscious about all of it and hardly thinking, oh, I'm the sort of guy, oh, great. Oh, you've got this tattooed, um, divorced, uh, uh, not as handsome as me guy who's here. Terrific. Great choice, Sam. So I was a bit anxious about it. So that we, we were going to have dinner together. We did have dinner together. And I thought, okay, I need to wear a long sleeve shirt. The fanciest long sleeve top I had was like a woolen jumper. Okay, like this, it was a grey woolen jumper. And I was already nervous, sweaty. Uh, We got to the restaurant and opened the door, and it was as if the door of hell had been opened. It was so hot. It was a Belgian restaurant, and for some reason, there was a a fireplace in the restaurant. And I was just like, now, if you've never... Have you ever seen anyone have sweat patches through wool? Before? Boy, that's not normal. Okay, I'm there. You know, there he is sitting over there, this strikingly handsome pilot. uh, And I go out, I put my hand out to shake his hand, and I knock his beer over. And that was the best it got. All the time, all the time, he's just stressing out, what am I thinking? What What does he think of me? What do I need to do to be accepted by him? What does he want from me? Um, around half an hour in, my, my wife, um, the conversation had you know, run out of things to talk about. So Sammy decided, oh, I'm going to tell him something about Dave, which is funny. Dave and I have been laughing about this, and I'll, I'll tell him this, and that will make him laugh. So he goes, oh, Dad, guess what I just found out about Dave? Um, I've just found out uh, he can't drive a manual. <laughs> now, a couple of things here. Uh, ladies in particular, you need to know this. Um, it is a matter of great public shame for any man who cannot drive a manual, despite the fact that 90% of us can't, okay? That's just the truth. And yet we all pretend that we kind of can. And then if the opportunity comes, it's a bit like, 
you know, doing walk-up evangelism. They're like, oh, sorry, I'm busy. I can't quite, oh, I don't know what to do. And so I'm there. I'm like 30 and I can't drive a And I'm just like, and I also, the second thing I want to say is, well, I actually now can drive a manual. Thank you very much. I, um, I learned at the age of 38 when my wife bought a manual car and I had no choice but to drive this damn thing that she'd bought. So after the dinner, Sam was dropping me home and, and she was driving her manual car and, um, and she dropped me home and I just looked at her and said, Sammy, why did you say that? Because Mac, the, my father, he looked at me like I was a piece of dirt in his shoe and I was like, what sort of man is this? And the divorce is bad, I can't drive a manual, what is this guy? Um, why would you tell him I can't drive a manual? Sam, this is a man who can drive a plane. And she looked at me like, Dave, it's fly a plane, not drive a plane. As if I hadn't been making that joke in the first place. As if I was so stupid, so inept with manual driving, I didn't know that you flew planes. It was a disaster. Expectations are funny things, aren't they? Build us with anxiety. New day at school, new day at work, new day at uni, new day, maybe first time at church. (gasps) All these type of things. Now, what's building on? What's building anxiety? What do they want from me? What do I need to do here? What do I need to be accepted? What do I need to, to do to be accepted? Now, here's the question. Have you ever considered the question, what does God want from you? Now, when I say you, I don't mean just you, you. I mean you, us, from people. What is it that God wants from us? Do you know that that question is at the core of every single religion on earth? Oh, 100% true. Every religion is seeking to answer and proclaiming that they have the answer to that question. And every, therefore, activity and and behaviour and ritual or whatever that takes place in all these religions is done as a result of that. In other words, what do we need to do to be accepted by God? Well, or the gods or whatever. Oh, you've got to do this? Okay, well, let's do that. This ritual, this practice, this whatever it is. Now, what's fascinating is that when you look into religions, other religions, this religion, all of it, You take a step back and have the broad, big picture. What you notice is something fascinating. Now, don't miss this. Listen. Um, Even though there's hundreds of thousands of different religions, let alone different views of spirituality and and so on and so forth, the reality is 99.9% of them answer this question in the same way. Now, not identically, but with the same ethos, the same center. There's only one religion that says something different. See, Christianity is entirely unique. And I don't just mean unique in the way that every religion is unique from each other. I mean it's unique from every other religion. They're together. Christianity stands alone. And the way you see its uniqueness clearly on display is how the Bible answers this question. The Bible offers a perspective. Check this out. You might know this. You might not know this. That is utterly radical, revolutionary. And I want to say utterly persuaded. I'm utterly persuaded that it's utterly true and beautiful and life-transforming. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to answer that question. What does God want from us, you, us, and you, you? What is it he wants from people? And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at um, two major chapter headings. Okay, Chapter 1, what does God say about us? Or what does God say about you and your life? Secondly, in the light of God's assessment of you, what does he want from you? And how do those two things interact with one another? So two chapters answering this question, then we'll step back and think how that plays through our life. Now, we're going to spend most of our time in Romans chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, 
Romans 3, have that open in front of you. If you're a regular member of here, if you're a regular member here, um, start bringing your Bible, that'd be super helpful. And if you're not a regular member here, pick up a Bible for free, that'd be great. I'm going to read out the verses, but having one in front of you is even better. Romans 3 is where we're going to be, Romans 3 is where we're going to be spending most of our time uh, tonight. Uh, and so let's get straight into it. Now, do you remember chapter 1? What does God say about us? The good news is Romans 3 is around as subtle as a shovel to the face. Okay, It's not mysterious. It's not hard to work out. It's not politician speak. Romans 3 tells us directly, exactly, clear as you like. Come to verse 10. Let me read out to you. Remember, what's this? The resume of you. Verse 10. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Just keep that there for a moment. The word righteous is the one I want you to have in your mind. Righteous is a word that means morally pure and upright. Think about going into the um, in a courtroom. Um, It's it's the the defendant saying not guilty and being honest, not guilty. No charge could be laid against them. It's the same as the word justified. I'm justified, righteous. But that's very bad news, isn't it? Because what does this passage say about us and righteousness? It says, no one, no one, no one, not one, no one is righteous. Not only that, none of us are good. None of us seek God. What's the basis of our unrighteousness? You see it there in verse 11? There is no one who seeks God. That's the basis of it. We know that because look at verse 23. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The basis of our unrighteousness, of our badness, of our worthlessness is we do not seek God. We fall short of his glory. We sin. We sin. Now that's a bad picture, isn't it? It's a hard picture. It's a difficult one. And it may very well be that you're here tonight thinking, man, why have I even come here tonight? I want to feel good about myself. But I'm afraid it gets much worse. I'm much worse. Look at verse 5, verse 6. Verse 5 and verse 6 tell us that there is coming a time when we will leave this earth, when we will die, or Jesus returns one way or the other, and our life will be laid out before God in judgment. And God, unlike us, is righteous. He is just. He is justice personified. He cannot overlook what we've done and pretend that it doesn't matter because you matter. He can't just go, ah, oh, we'll sweep it, under, sweep it under the carpet. That would make him unjust. He is righteous in judgment. We will be judged by the righteous God. The charge, sin. The verdict, guilty. The punishment, you see it, verse 6, verse 5. The punishment, God's wrath. Now, what's wrath mean? That's a word that means anger. God's anger. Let me summarize it for you like this. And I want to say this. I'm going to say it with vulgarity. That's an old person word for rudely. And I don't mean I'm going to swear, I just mean I'm going to say it to you straight. What does Christianity say about you? It says you are a sinner. You deserve the punishment of God for the way that you've lived. The punishment of God is hell. And it's what you deserve. That is what the Bible says about you. But not just you, by the way. No exceptions. The best person you've ever met, the worst person you've ever met. The person to your left, the person to your right. Don't look at them, but them. In front of you, maybe look at them. 
but also you. That's you. Oh, it's hard to hear, isn't it? And I want to say it's particularly confronting um, because it may be very, very different to the way that you've ever thought about yourself and it may be very different to the way that you've thought Christianity talks about people. You know, maybe you thought, hold on, I thought Christianity was about love. It is, it is. But make no mistake, this is what the Bible says about people. I think the confusion that we have, though, the, the, the misunderstanding that can take place sometimes, is because of a misunderstanding, a miscommunication about the word righteous and unrighteous. In, in particular, there's a misunderstanding about what makes a person righteous and makes someone unrighteous. We can hear this sort of thing and say, how dare you? I'm a good person. I've never done anything terrible. Who are you to call me unrighteous? Or you may say, how dare you? I'm not a nice person, but I've met, are you calling my grandmother unrighteous? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Well, I'm not. God is. But why? How? Well, it's that definition, isn't it? Listen. How do we define goodness and badness? Think of the best person that you know. What is it that makes them so good? We almost exclusively define being a good person, being a bad person, in relation to how they treat us. Is that right? What makes someone a good, a good bloke or a nice Female, girl, whatever, woman, or good, whatever. What is it that makes someone good? They're nice, they're generous, they're kind, they're thoughtful. What is it that makes someone the opposite? A jerk. They're selfish, they're they're, they're narcissistic, they're self-obsessed. We almost always categorize being good and being bad, righteous and unrighteous, in regard and relation to how we behave towards one another. But that is not what the Bible says. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 11, none seek God. The behavior that truly matters is not how we treat one another. The Bible says very clearly, and don't miss this part. Don't think that somehow this is some weird version of Christianity. This is what the Bible says from the index to the maps, okay, all the way. This is what it says. The behavior that truly matters, that you are judged and clarified, classified by, is how you treat God. The way we treat one another... They're just symptoms of the problem. Let me illustrate this for you. I want you to imagine um, that you're, you know, you're, maybe just like, you're, just say, imagine you're 12 years old and you've got a little sister, okay? And your little sister, she's turning 10 uh, and she's out playing sport. It's her birthday. It's her birthday. She's turned 10 and your dad is making a cake for your sister and he's making a super amazing 10-year-old female cake. It's got... Now, I'm not going to go with cliché. It's got Ron Weasley in it. It's got some Pokemon in it. It's got some Barbie in it. Um, but it also has some sports. It is an amazing cake. Okay? Your dad is laboring. Incredibly difficult. He, it makes this beautiful. You're smelling it. Go, this smells amazing. Now, your dad, though, he's about to head out to pick up your sister. And he says to you, Oi, listen, no matter what, can you tell I've got kids? I've got six kids. You want one? No matter what, no matter what, no matter what, do not touch the cake. You go, Dad, I'm not going to touch it. Shut up. Don't touch the cake. I know. you. I'm not going to. Dad, what am I going to do? I'm not going to touch. Don't touch the cake, Dad. I am not going to touch the cake. So he is drives off. You take out your phone. You're tracking him. Yeah, he's gone. Okay, he's up the street. Look to the right. Look to the left. And then with even your hands, it's actually really impressive. You just and you dive into the cake. You inhale it. Oh, my goodness. Here's the question. Who have you treated unfairly? 
Well, your, your little sister. That's obvious. It's her cake. It's her birthday. You jerk. You've ruined her birthday. But primarily, that's not who you've treated unfairly, is it? That's not who you've shown injustice to. That's not who you've treated unrighteously. Who have you treated unfairly? Your father. Why? It's his cake. He created it. And because he created it, what does that give him the right? That gives him the right to determine how, when, why, and by whom it is eaten. My dear friend, that is the core of sin. When we mistreat each other, when others mistreat us, when we lie, when we're full of anger or rage or lust or jealousy or whatever it is, when people treat, we think the worst damage is one to one. Now, those are problems. It is terrible. But primarily, it's against God. It's against God. We, and, and let me be clear, we're all in the same boat. I am on a stage at the moment, but I want to make it clear. This is not me above you going, you're all sinning. I'm beneath. Let me dig deep. We're all, well, I'm going to fall over. We're all in the same boat. All of us. No exceptions. Let's just press pause for a moment. Um, I want to acknowledge that is a really dark picture. And if you brought a friend tonight, you're like, why tonight? Why did I bring him tonight? But I want to say it's absolutely critical that you see it. Critical. Two reasons. One, none of us want fake news Christianity. We don't want to give it to you. You don't want to take it. Trust me, you don't want to take it. You can say, I don't agree with that. I think it's nonsense. Chuck it out. No drama. Well, some drama, I reckon, but nonetheless. But the one thing you can't say is, oh, I just don't like that part. I'm going to do the rest. No, no, no. This is what the Bible says. If you don't like it, okay, fine. But you've got to come to grips with that's what Christianity says about you. 100%. But the second reason, and even more important than that, that it's so critical you get that, is because unless you see the darkness, the, the, the pitch black jet blackness of the reality of your existence, unless you see that, unless you realize you cannot see it so dark, your own situation is so dire, you will never, ever, ever grasp hold of the light. You'll never be able to see what happens next for what it is. You see, the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, Romans, he wrote this, he wrote Corinthians, he wrote Romans, he details this resume, this spiritual resume of us. It's terrible reading. It's horrible reading, but it's brutally true. But then everything changes. Have a look at verse 21, the beginning of our reading. Verse 21. But now... Foot on the clutch. Down to reverse. That's right. Turn it around. But now, a change. Something different. What is it? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, what does that mean? This is what it means. This is huge. It's astonishing. Do you remember before we were talking about the righteousness of God and I said the righteousness of God is found in his judgment, his justice, he's perfect, he's pure, he cannot overlook sin. Absolutely true. But that is not the only facet, dimension of God's righteousness. No, no, no. There is another dimension of God's righteousness, the thing that makes him pure, morally upright, without fault, that has been present all throughout eternity but yet often missed. 
You see, God's righteousness is not just displayed in justice, but it's displayed in love, in mercy, in kindness, in service. It's not just in justice, but it's also found in his desire to justify the unjust. And so into the middle of the darkness of the reality of our existence, God turns on the lights. Look at verse 25. What did he do? God presented Christ. Now just say there, presented. What does that mean? Put on display. Jesus came to earth. It's not a secret. Publicly, in history, real person. But more than that, who was it who presented Jesus? God. The life of Jesus, not an accident. The death of Jesus, not an accident. Nothing that happened to Jesus was an accident, a fluke, a matter of chance or a tragedy. No, no, no. God is the one in sovereign control of all things. What does he say? Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. A lot of big words in there. What does that mean? Jesus Christ died in your place to make you righteous. How does that work? Because Jesus died as a sacrifice of atonement. What that means is he absorbed the punishment, God's wrath that we deserve for our sin against God. On the cross, you could say Jesus became the most sinful person who ever lived. As billions and billions and billions of sins of billions of believers were poured onto his soul. And through his death, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He wiped our sins clean. He took them all. And then he gave us his righteousness. What do we see on the cross? On the cross, we see... God's righteousness in full, high definition. IMAX, huge color and sound. God's justice, so pure, so perfect, that an eternity in hell will not suffice it. God's love, so perfect, so pure, that he's willing to send his own son for a scumbag like me and a scumbag like you. God can be just and justifier. And I want to say that the consequences of what Jesus has done here are literally everything. <laughs> I am not, I'm prone to hyperbole from time to time. Not this time. This is it. The very essence of humanity. The very essence of what it is to, me, to be a living creature. To be one of God's creations. God did this for you. What does it mean? Verse 22. The righteousness, this righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus that can be ours through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And now there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means this. No matter your race, no matter your creed, no matter your background, no matter your bank account, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've seen, no matter who you've done it with, no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how good that you think you've made, it makes no difference. Verse 24, 
All are justified freely by his grace. And grace, that word, is the key to understanding all of life. God should show us wrath, but instead, what does he shower us with? Grace. Grace. His justice has been satisfied. He holds nothing against us because he shows us grace. Now, what does the word grace mean? It's a beautiful sounding word, isn't it? I know there's a word out there that defines words that sound like the... What is that I'm talking about? The thing where it sounds, it sounds like the word it's talking about. No, that's not. Shut up, David. Okay. The word grace is a beautiful word. I hear it, I'm like, grace. Oh, it's a lovely word. <laughs> but that's not the beauty of grace. It's not that it sounds nice. It's the meaning. Yeah, the meaning. What does it mean? Okay, when you hear the word grace, I want you to think of generosity. First of all, generosity. Same word. Go deeper. Grace, as it relates to God, means undeserved generosity. Deeper. Grace, as it pertains to God in salvation, means God's overflowing, never-ending, eternally consistent love pointed directly at those who deserve the opposite. That is grace. And I want to say, it's very hard for us to get that, isn't it? Because it goes like this. Like, sure, okay, that's nice. Next, whatever. Why is that? I'll tell you why. The reason for that is because we don't experience it in our lives. We don't give it. You might think you do, you don't. We don't receive it. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you go home tonight and you get home and um, you, you, um, you open the door. You see the doors actually. You, don't have, you, you see the doors being kicked in. You get in and you interrupt someone um, robbing your house. They're there. You catch them in the act. What do you have the right to do? Call triple O cops. Boom. But I want you to imagine that instead you see this person filling up a bag with all your valuables and instead of hating them, you love them. Now, love them the way that you love the person you love the most. Okay, Imagine that love for this person breaking into your house. So much so, you don't call the cops, you go to the cupboard and you pull open the cupboard and you pull out more bags and you drop them on the ground. And you go, oh, mate, you missed my grandmother's jewellery. It's just over there. Go get it there. And I've I got a whole you know, bag of cash under my bed, whatever. Um, and I'm going to... So cash is this thing. It's money, but it's physical. Um, <laughs> I've got some coins. And, that, and, you, and you know what? Stuff, this is ridiculous. I'll tell you what we're going to do, Mr. Burglar. What I'm going to do is let's set up an electronic bank transfer between us. And I will just pay you continually from my account to you back and forth. Let's hang out and talk about it. Now, you would never, ever do that. Why not? Because what do they deserve? Punishment. This is not a good person. They deserve punishment. That's what they deserve. Now, that's grace. But let's go further. Imagine that instead of this person being a robber, they're a murderer. And you go home tonight to discover, and I apologise for this, but bear with me, that they haven't just broken into your house, they've actually broken into your house and murdered the people that you love the most. And now, I want you to imagine that you see them and you don't only not call the cops, you don't open up a bag and set up an electronic bank transfer, you look at them and you love them. And you say to them, Stay here. The bed of the one who you just killed, you have that bed. That's for you now. You have that. Stay here. This seat at the table, this is for you. You know what? I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to adopt you into my family. And what do you call that? Madness? 
The Bible calls that grace. And grace changes everything. What does grace mean, my dear friends? Hear this. Grace means you do not get right with God by virtue of what you've done. Forget about it. It's over. The damage is done. The window is smashed. You cannot fix it. You get right with God not because you've been good and you've done the right thing. You get right with God by what Jesus has done for you. That's what grace means. Now, what that means is that Jesus Christ, and check this out, because I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 28, even though I was brought up in a family that went to church, and, and I must have heard this thing a, million, a, billion to, a billion times, but it never clicked, I never got it, but I needed to hear it. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? Jesus Christ did not die because you're a good, righteous person. You got that? Not because you're good. But further than that, Jesus Christ did not die in spite of you being a not good person. Like, ah, well, they're not too bad. I'm going to do it anyway. No, no, no. no. Jesus Christ died because you're an unrighteous person. That's why he did it. And some of you are like, yeah, of course. No, no. Others of you, that's why he did it. He did it because you're not good. Now, what does that mean about your life and your sin and your unrighteousness? Your sin does not disqualify you. Your past doesn't disqualify you. Your actions, your thoughts, your words, your secrets, your shame, it does not disqualify you from God's kingdom. It qualifies you for his grace. You see that? It doesn't disqualify. It qualifies you. You don't deserve it, but you got it if you want it. And grace changes everything. Now, um, I know that these are some really uh, powerful and, and profound truths, and I want to say uh, it might very well be that you're hearing this and maybe, well, whatever. You're hearing it, you're not quite sure about it. Uh, you're intrigued, you're not intrigued, you're confused. Um, we heard um, an advertisement earlier for the Life series. You may have done it before. I don't care. If you're not sure, come. Come along. Um, and come and hang out, ask these questions, grapple with these things, talk about them, think about them, wrestle with them. These questions are too big to just push to the side. If it's true, it changes everything. If it's not true, we've got nothing better to do on a Sunday. Well, the Central Coast, what else are we going to do? But we've got nothing else to do with our time. Let's find another reason to make. But if it's true, everything changes. But I want to say, God's generosity doesn't end with salvation. You see... As we look into these things, one of the things that can happen is we, we hear the story of Jesus' death and, and resurrection, and, and we, we're Christians, we, respond, we, we, we trust in that. But I want to say we finish there often, and that can lead us to a sort of miserable Christian existence. But I want to say this passage pushes it further. See, God's generosity, God's generosity to you has not finished by Jesus' death and resurrection. Come and read verse 22 again. Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he's, taken your, he's absorbed your sin. So, so what do you need to do? Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, what we're learning here is simple, isn't it? If you think this is true, how do you respond? How are you called to respond? By faith, by belief. Now, faith just simply means trust by relying on God. 
here's where we often get tripped up. For many of us, we hear that and we think, oh, well, it's kind of like a quid pro pro. God does for me. He scratches my back. I'll scratch his back. I get this. Okay, so he does 50% of it. Jesus and God, they're doing things. Thank you very much. I'll do the 50% that I have to do. I will believe. Okay, and then that's sort of how it matches. Or maybe you're not that arrogant. Maybe you go, oh, God does 99% and I just do 1% over here. But that is not what the Bible is saying. That's not what the passage is saying. My friends, God's generosity does not end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because what is faith? The faith that is required for you to receive this gift. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Just let me chuck a couple of passages on the screen here if you look at it. For it is by grace you have been saved. We know that God's un- undeserved gift. You've been saved through faith. Okay, So you accept the gift through faith. But check this out. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now look what Jesus says, John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. What does this mean? What it means is that it's not only Jesus' death and resurrection that offers you righteousness and justification, that offers you grace, but grace doesn't end there. Grace also gives you the faith you need to respond to it. Your salvation is not about you. If you are truly a Christian here tonight, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, God is the one in control of it all. He did it all. All of them. All of them. The faith that you respond to his grace with is actually part of receiving the grace that he gives. Even the trust you have. And it's confusing, isn't it? Because we think when we become Christians, oh, it's me, I've made this decision. But God says, no, no, no. You think you have, but no, no. It's me, I've been at work. I've done these things for you. Now, um, I have on the clock desk, there's a sermon time here. I have six minutes left. Okay? Um, But because I've been talking like a crazy person, I've got a whole bunch of stuff left to say that I'm going to cut. But I need you to pay attention for six more minutes. Can you do that? What I want to say is, What does God want from you? Well, he wants faith, and he gives you the faith to respond that way. What has God given you? Well, he gives you grace. The question is, how do those things transform the life that you live today? Think of it this way. Why do you think God is telling you these things? This is here in the Bible. We're reading these things for ourselves. You can read it for yourself. Why is it that God wants you to know it? God has a desire, an objective in mind in telling you this stuff. So what is it? It's always a good question to ask the Bible. What's God's purpose in telling me this? Now, I want to say, I reckon there is a purpose on display. I want to offer that there is an outcome that God is at work in here to point us towards. But before I give it to you, I must warn you, it sounds a bit strange. What I'm about to offer to you, it does sound a little bit weird, but I want you to see it, I want you to hear it, and then I want to explain it. So what is the, the outcome that God is pushing you towards, that God is trying to produce in you by virtue of telling you all of this great action that he does? Well, I reckon the outcome is optimism. Optimism. Now, why is that strange? Well, it's strange because we normally think optimistic, overly optimistic people are a little bit unhinged. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's nice to think positively about life, but the sort of person who's just like, oh, well, 
You know, like living in a war zone and bombs are dropping and they're like, oh, it's just raining outside. And you're like, what are you talking about, man? You know, that kind of, you're like, no, no, that's, you're detached from reality. But I want to offer you that optimism is God's desire for you as you consider your life. And it will transform how you live your life. However, let me be clear that Christian optimism is a very different thing to just broad level optimism. The word optimism itself means um, excitement, it means um, joy, it means confidence in, in success coming up. Confidence in something good that hasn't yet happened but will happen. But what is Christian optimism? Christian optimism is not confidence and assurance in something that you will do that will happen or something that will happen to you by virtue of someone else. Christian optimism is confidence and assurance that is utterly dependent on God's goodness. What it means is trusting in God's promises in such a powerful and profound way that it transforms the way you live, the way you think about life, the way you think about all of your life, the past, the present, and the future. Let me hit those things very quickly for you. How does God's grace transform the way you think about the future and the present? Well, let me put it like this. My friends, God's grace to you means if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God has accepted you fully and finally, continuously, unreservedly and eternally. More than that. It means you can be sure of it because it is not dependent on your fluctuating behavior and spirituality. It's dependent on what Jesus has done for you. It's secure, it's steadfast, it's immovable. God has accepted you, not on the basis of you, but on the basis of him. And that means you can have assurance, confidence. You can know deep in your soul that your future eternity is secure because Jesus has paid for it to be that way. God has planned it out that way. That if you are a Christian, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the creation of the world and it will be there till the end and beyond the creation of the world. God keeps his promises. It's steadfast. It's sure. He is not letting you go. And that means you can be sure you're a Christian. How? We'll look at this in more detail next week, but listen, listen. How can you be sure you're a Christian as a result of that? Because the chief evidence of conversion is trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And I want to say to you, just encourage you, that if you're concerned about whether you truly trust Jesus or not, that's usually good evidence that you do. Because if you don't, you usually don't give a damn. And that completely transforms how you view your past. When the devil creeps into your ears to whisper to you about your previous sin, there's no way God will accept you after what you've done. When guilt and regret haunt and plague you, there's no way God could still love you after you did that, even since you've been a Christian. God's seen it all, you've lost it. When doubt and fear and anxiety shroud over you, God's promises prevail. Your eternity is secure because it's on him, not on you. Trust him and rest. And I want to say this transforms how we understand life today in an astonishing way. 
A few chapters later in Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. Romans 8 verse 28. And I'm just, it's on the screen. I'm just going to read it out. This is what Paul says. And I want you to keep in mind, this is the application of these promises of grace to your life today. And we know that in all things, what's all things? In everything, every single situation that you have ever been through, every single situation you ever will go through, good, bad, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is in the thick of it. He's in the middle of it. He is not absent. He is present. He does not snooze. He does not nap. He doesn't take a smoke break. He doesn't do anything. He is here. And not only that, he works for your good. What does that mean? Grace means that God is utterly, utterly devoted to your continual good. God is for you, 100% for you, 100% of the time. He loves you. He doesn't stop loving you. He doesn't rise and fall on the basis of a mood. He's not impressed by you. He's not depressed by you. He loves you. It's unshakable, unbreakable. It will not bend. He loves you. He loves you more than you've ever loved anyone ever in your life. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it means we need to work out what the good that God has given us is. Verse 29. What is the good? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your good, the good that God is at work in you to produce is that you will become like Jesus in all things mature, in all things grow, in character, in love, in joy. Now, what does that mean if your faith is in Christ Everything God does, everything you experience is at work in you for your good. In suffering and pain, he is not absent, he's present. In heartache and misery, he's not absent, he's right here. In relational breakdown and heartache, he's here. In the diagnosis or the devastation, He's here. In stress and worry and concern, even in death, we can persevere because he is here. Our perseverance is not built on our will. It's built on his never-ending, overflowing love for you. That's the love of Christ for you. When we moved to the Central Coast um, we were living in the UK for a few years and that meant my children had never been to a beach because the beaches in the UK are... They are horrible. People are great. Beach is terrible. So we came here and my little boy, Jesse, who's three years old, he, you know, he couldn't swim, just like his father. And um, that meant he was terrified of the ocean and we'd go to the beach you know, and he'd get it to his ankles. As soon as it started touching him, he'd put his hand out and, and grab onto me. So I'd hold his hand and he'd go out, you know, all the way up to his knees. He's such a brave boy. All the way to his knees and he'd keep clinging to his hand. But here's what would happen. What would happen in the middle of that? See, what would happen is Jesse's hand would begin to slip and falter. Why? Because he's a toddler. He's got the strength of a, you know, a string beam. You know, it's just not... So he can't hold on to me. But I never let him go. As his grip faltered and fell and slipped... I was determined to hold on. I was determined to do him good. Utterly persuaded and convinced that his good was security and safety in life. I don't know what your life is like right now. I don't know what situation or circumstance you're living in. I know for some of you it's really, really hard. 
For the others of you, it's just really hard. But we do not judge God's love on the basis of circumstance and situation, according to the Bible. We judge God's love on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And that grace means God is always at work for your good. He's here. He's here. He's here. You can trust him. Rest in him. Fix your eyes on him. Allow your understanding and comprehension of him to grow so it grows in parallel with the enormity of his love for you. That's the key to life, my friends. That's what it means. And that's how you know you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian here tonight, become one. Would you do that? (laughs) Please, become a Christian. Oh, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, And if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Anything. Um, Hey, I only went four minutes over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that the death and resurrection of Jesus means we can always, always, always depend utterly on your good for us, that you're always doing good for us, that you're at work for our good endlessly. We can rely on you. And we can do so because our salvation is not based on our goodness but yours. Lord, I pray for us tonight that we would cling to your goodness in the knowledge that you hold us in yours. It is your hand holding us, guiding us, protecting us. And you will never leave us or forsake us. Your right hand upholds us. And your life is better. Your love is better than life. Lord, I pray all these things through the name of your Son, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.